from the Epistle of Certainties, as it is often called. It has also been called the Epistle of Love because it was written by an apostle who was known as the Apostle of Love. And while he was known as the Apostle of Love, his love was truly a biblically-based love, a balanced biblically-based love, which did not cause him to in any way shy away from condemning error, false teachers and false teaching, as is clear from the study of 1 John. And as John in this epistle and in his other writings uh, confronted error that he faced in his day. He was a valiant soldier of the cross and yet he was one who loved very deeply the precious souls of all mankind and who had a special attachment and a special love for those whom he often referred to and wrote to as his children. That is, his children in the faith. And as we think about that, we come to a verse as we continue our study tonight where he uses that address once again. Just as he used it back in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, which we have already studied, where he wrote, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. As we talked about that passage then, he referred to all of those who were in the faith as children, little children, those who were children of the Father, those who were followers of Christ, those who were no doubt for the most part younger in the faith than was John because as John wrote these words, he was an older, an older Christian. And in that verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, the little children, as we said, has reference to all to whom he wrote. But as we look at this section tonight, beginning at verse 12, especially through verse 14, John appears to compartmentalize, if you will, or to address certain groups within those children. That is, all those to whom he referred to as his children back in chapter 2, verse 1, he now breaks that group down, if you will. And he writes, first of all, to little children, some believe to all, but the context would seem to indicate, based upon the fact that he is talking to different groups, that here, when he refers to little children, it is not as he did in 1 John 2, verse 1, but here he is literally talking to those who are in the faith, yes, but those who are new in the faith. That is, those who are infant children, if you will, babes in Christ, those who are not as mature in their faith because they have not been in the faith as long as those to whom he refers as fathers in verse 13, or even to the young men uh, who are included in these verses here. And so there is a division here that is interesting and very revealing as it reminds us of the growth that we should all strive for in the faith. That yes, there are those who are young in the faith. And I believe that's the group to whom he writes in verse 12, the group he has in mind as he says, I write to you little children. That is those of you who are new in the faith, babes in Christ, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now certainly what he says about these who are new in the faith, 
that is also true of those who are the fathers and those who are uh, the young men, those who are older in the faith and those who are stronger in the faith. All of us who are in the faith have had our sins forgiven. Thanks be to God that that is the case. But he is reminding those who have been forgiven that they have been forgiven and stand forgiven. The word forgiven there is in the perfect tense which indicates this is something that has taken place in the past with results that continue to this very moment in time. And that's what forgiveness is all about. Forgiveness that has obtained in the past that continues as, as John has already written in this same epistle, as we continue to walk in the light, as he is in the light. And as we recognize the fact that we still sin, even as those who are in the faith, and that we are called upon by John and throughout Scripture to confess our sins to the Father through Jesus Christ. But as we meet those conditions of continued fellowship, as we've already studied in this epistle, we have the beautiful privilege of prayer and the wonderful joy and peace that come to those who know they are forgiven, that their sins have been blotted out, that they are remembered no more. And how is that accomplished? For his name's sake, Christ's sake, through his name, by his authority. In other words, the only way that forgiveness can be obtained and the way that these little children who are new in the faith had obtained that forgiveness was through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to the Father. There is no other means of forgiveness. There is no other way to obtain forgiveness. Remember in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There can be no forgiveness of sins unless we come to God, but there can be no coming to God unless we come through Christ. For his name's sake. We've talked about this expression, for his name's sake, or in his name, in various contexts. And it carries the idea of by his authority and through his mediatorial work and the authority that he had as he expressed that authority as he lived among men and forgave sins while he was on earth, remember? And there were times when he would heal, but remember the man who was let down through the roof by those four who brought him, and on that occasion, Jesus expressed that this man's sins were forgiven, and those Jews who stood by marveled at that, and he said these things, the Scripture says, so that they who stood by, and those of us for all time to come, would know that as Jesus lived among men, he had the power, the authority, to forgive sins. He maintains and retains that authority today, that through him, in his name, by his authority, forgiveness of sins is obtained. And it's only by that authority. Those who seek to approach God in any other way other than through Jesus Christ and by his authority cannot obtain that forgiveness that brings that joy and that wonderful peace that John reminds these little children that they experienced at this point in time. But as we read on, he also now moves to the fathers. That is representative, I would believe, here of those who are long-time participants in the faith. That is, those who've been Christians for, for a long time. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. 
Who would that be who is from the beginning? It would be the Christ again, would it not? The eternal word, the living word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, as John, the same writer, begins his gospel account. And so this is a reference to the Christ. You have known him who is from the beginning. And to know is to have more than a casual acquaintance. It is to know him from long-time experience of participating in the blessings and the joys that derive from maturing in the faith and recognizing and appreciating to the fullest extent as one who has grown in the faith the blessings that come through Christ. Isn't it the case that the longer we live as Christians, the greater our joy, the greater our peace, the greater our love, the greater our gratitude. Should we not grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Peter said we should, Second Peter 3.18, didn't he? But grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. Grow in favor. Grow in appreciation and recognition of that favor. And these fathers, that is those who had been in the faith for a long period of time, would greatly appreciate those blessings that they could see and had experienced for a long period of time. You know, it was said of Polycarp, who was martyred around the end of the first century. It was said when they were about to burn him at the stake, I believe was the method that was to be used. And he was given the opportunity to recant, that is to deny Christ and save his life. He said something to this effect, for 80 plus years, whatever his age was, uh, from the time that he uh, had, uh, had claimed to know Christ, he said, he has not forsaken me. He has been with me, in other words. I will not deny him now. And so the point was, the longer that man had lived, the longer that he appreciated the blessings that come through Jesus Christ. Indeed, those who are the fathers... And there are many in this audience here tonight who would be considered among the fathers. And I don't mean you have to be a male a member of the body of Christ to be considered. Because is John excluding older women here who've been in the faith and who've been faithful for many years, who were advanced in years? Or is this simply a figurative expression for the mature in the faith? I think the latter is the case. And so there are men and women who are here tonight who have lived and participated in the beautiful fellowship in Christ for years and years and years. And you have the fullest possible appreciation for the joys of being in the kingdom. Ron expressed it so beautifully in his beautiful prayer tonight. The privileges that we have if we are in the kingdom of Christ they're privileges that are difficult to express appreciation for adequately, as he so beautifully expressed in his prayer tonight as he led us. And the longer one lives in those blessings and participates in those blessings, 
the greater the appreciation and there will be a much greater likelihood of finishing and dying as a faithful child of God the longer one has experienced those blessings because there is a maturation process there a strengthening process that will enable one to endure a great deal more than perhaps a babe in Christ is prepared to endure. I think about a passage along these lines that we studied back in 1 Peter when we looked at that epistle. Remember 1 Peter 4 and verse 1. Peter wrote, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. The same mind to do what? Suffer in the flesh. That's the context here. And so as Christ suffered for us in the flesh, you Christians arm yourselves with that same determination, that same mind, that same willingness to suffer in the flesh. Now listen to how, what he adds. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I thought we all were sinners. We are. What does Peter mean? I think what he means is that if indeed you have grown and matured in your faith to the extent that you know for a fact you would suffer and die for Christ, it's much less likely that sin is going to overcome you, overtake you in your life. Because you are, as it were, a father in the faith. In other words, a mature child of God. And the more mature you become, the less likelihood there is that you're going to deny that faith and abandon it in those later years. Well, doesn't that tell us that it behooves us then to apply ourselves to growth so that we can help to assure ourselves of standing where we need to stand and being where we need to be? Because we are in a difficult world. And John is going to remind us of that in verse 15, if I ever get to it tonight. That we are in a difficult world. And it's a challenging world. Whether we're young or old, it's still a challenging world. And there is never a time when we are completely immune from being overcome by Satan. But there is a time, and this is my point in this part of our lesson, where we can Reduce the odds, if you will, tremendously of being overcome. By what? By applying ourselves fervently and faithfully to this book. Just as we'll learn in the verses that follow. And so after he writes to the fathers... He then in the same verse mentions the young men. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. The wicked substance. The wicked mysterious force. No, the wicked one. Which tells us what? Satan is not some mysterious substance. Satan is an evil personality. Satan is real. He is that roaring lion. He is that personality that seeks through various means to destroy our souls. 
And to these young men who have gained strength, he commends them because they have overcome the wicked one. Overcome to the extent that there's no possibility that they'll ever fall? No, we've already addressed that. They could still succumb. But they have nonetheless matured in their faith to the point that they can be considered, and John does consider them to be strong in the faith. Then he mentions the little children again and tells them, yes, you have known the Father. Again, not casual knowledge, but knowledge that comes through the Word of God and obedience thereto. Then he continues in verse 14, again addressing the fathers. I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. Is John repeating himself over and over again here? Uh, are these words uh, words that have been inserted that don't really belong to, to John? Or is this simply a style that John uses to emphasize his point? I think obviously the latter is the case. He wants to stress and make sure that he is understood. And so in very similar terms, he mentions again, In verse 14, to the fathers, I have written to you because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now, do you see the distinction? Back at verse 12, I write to you. Verse 13, I write to you, I write to you, I write to you. And now suddenly in verse 14, I have written to you. Is he talking about two different writings? I think not. He's just simply talking about the same epistle, the one we're reading and studying here, but simply from two perspectives. I write to you is from the perspective of the writer as he writes it. I have written to you is from the perspective of the one who has received it and is now reading it. And I believe that's exactly what is involved here. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Then back to the young men. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. Now back Earlier he had said, I've written to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. Now he further describes those who've overcome the wicked one as being those who are strong. And then very importantly, very importantly, he ties that strength to something that I hold in my hand and that you hold in yours or certainly can hold. And that's the word of God. Because what? I write to you. Because you are strong, young men, and what? The word of God abides in you. Why do I need anything but the word of God abiding in me to provide me with everything that John is depicting here in these various Christians or Christians of various ages? I need nothing more. If the word of God abides in me, then I can have my sins forgiven as I obey that word. If the word of God abides in me, I can continue having obeyed that word to grow stronger in the faith every day as I feed upon that word. I can become those young men. I can become like those young men whom John commends here. I can become ultimately like those fathers. And all of that growth process is attributable to the power of the word of God. Nothing more and nothing less. And you have overcome the wicked one. 
you have overcome the wicked one. Those young men who were strong have overcome the wicked one. They're strong because the word of God abides in them. The strength enables them to overcome the wicked one. Therefore, the word of God will enable me to overcome the wicked one. Very much reminiscent of what Paul wrote in the latter part of his epistle to the Ephesians. Remember in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, that you may overcome the wicked one, as John expresses it, of course. Same idea. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That sounds like a very formidable opponent, doesn't it? The reason it sounds that way is because it is that kind of opponent. The spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. Can we see them and touch them now? No. And we don't ever want to see them and touch them, do we? We want to overcome them now so that we never have to see and touch them. But they are there, Satan's hosts, and they are at work. Therefore, because they are, verse 13 of Ephesians 6, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, there it is again. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with what? Truth. Where do I find that? True. Right here. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. How do I know what righteousness is? Right here. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How do I know anything about the gospel of peace? Right here. You can't know anything about the gospel of peace without this. That's where it's revealed, isn't it? Above all, taking the shield of faith. We talked about it this morning. The shield of faith. How can I take up the shield of faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Therefore, the shield of faith is directly tied to the word of God with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation. Where do I have any knowledge of salvation? Right here. And the sword of the spirit. And what is the sword of the spirit? He specifically says, which is the word of God which is the word of God. So that whole armor of God all directly ties us back to the written word. The word which so many ignore, the word which so many attack, the word which so many, even who claim to believe it, spend precious little time with. And because they do spend precious little time with it, they remain Little children in the faith for a period of time, but then ultimately they will drift. Because if we are not with him and moving forward in the faith, what is going to happen? We'll move back. And Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And so these verses here in 1 John, verses 12 through 14, to me can be summarized as a tremendously sobering reminder of how important it is.
for us to move from being little children who are so grateful that our sins are forgiven, so grateful for the love that has made that possible that we will apply ourselves to becoming young men, as it were, and ultimately fathers in the faith. In other words, it reminds us of how important it is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in contrast to that positive process, we have the negative warning then that is next given in very familiar verses, I'm sure to us, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world. You've overcome the wicked one, he says. Now do not love the world. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot continue to overcome the wicked one and have any love for the world. Well, I thought God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16, he did. So therefore the world to which John refers here cannot be the world that God loved so much he gave his son to die for. That's all mankind. God's love for all mankind, those who comprise this world, the human beings that comprise this world, we are also to love. We're to love their souls to the extent that we do all that we can to bring those precious souls into covenant relationship with God and Christ. Also, the admonition not to love the world cannot be don't love the physical creation. Quite often in prayers that are led in this building, we are called upon to thank God for his creation, for the world, for the birds and for the rain for the sunshine and for all the beautiful things that God has given us. It's not that world that we're not to love. In fact, we would do well to love that a lot more than we do in terms of not taking it for granted and overlooking those simple, beautiful things and not stopping to literally smell the roses because God has given us those things for our enjoyment and to remind us of His power. As again, Ron mentioned in terms of the physical creation of our human bodies and the intricacies and the complexities that are mind-boggling still to medical authorities who have advanced tremendously but still can't tell you how that works. No, it's not that that we're not to love. What is it? Do not love the world. That sphere of evil influence the worldliness, we are not to love it. That realm in which Satan is king, that realm that draws so many people to get caught up in the, in the secular, in the humanistic approach that leads them away from the spiritual. Do not love the world generically speaking, do not love the world. But then John gets very specific, and I think not without reason. Do not love the world. Don't have a general love for that worldly environment. But don't love the what? The things in the world. He goes from the generic to the very specific. And I think by design. Because we can see where one might claim not to have a, a real love for 
the world as a whole in terms of worldliness, but still be overcome by one thing. In other words, I might be able to resist worldliness in any number of, of manifestations of worldliness, but if one manifestation of worldliness gets me and overcomes me, I've still been overcome by the world. It may be that I don't have a worldly mindset, but I've got one thing that is a specific thing in the world that can overcome me. Think about the rich young ruler and see if that's not an example of what I'm talking about. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he said what? Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, at that time, the law of Moses was still in effect, and so Jesus answered accordingly and said, keep the law. And he said, these things I've kept from my youth up, as Jesus enumerated some of those things that were part of the law of Moses. And then, with a seemingly very good attitude, he asked, what do I still lack? What lack I yet? And Jesus, knowing this young man's heart, a man who would have been commended by his Jewish peers, a man who would have been considered, uh, uh, to have been considered a spiritually minded individual, no doubt. Jesus, knowing his heart, said, One thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And the young man, as you well know, went away sorrowful. The commandments he had kept, but there was still something, and that was his attitude toward what he possessed, that stood between him and following the Lord. And so John says, don't love the world as we have defined it, or the things in the world from the generic to the very specific. And it may be that our love for something that in and of itself is not sinful could still become such and overcome us. Remember what the Hebrews writer said in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, when he talked about laying aside every, what? Weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. The weight may not be sinful, and then he mentioned sin. So he mentions weight and sin separately as though something could become a weight to us that ultimately becomes sinful even though in and of itself it may not be sinful. Is it wrong for you to love your husband or your wife? I certainly hope not. Of course not. But what if you love your husband and your wife so much that you allow your husband or your wife to keep you from obeying the gospel of Christ? That's a weight that becomes a sinful hindrance. And so, any earthly relationship is a thing in the world, isn't it? If I allow that relationship in the world to stand between me and the Father, then indeed, while I might not be characterized as a worldly, immoral person, I've still allowed something in the world to keep me out of heaven, tragically. If anyone loves the world, he says... The love of the Father is not in him. Now, where do we get from this passage that it's all right to have a certain amount of affection for worldly things, but as long as I'm not completely engulfed by it, I can still love the Father and love some things in the world in the wrong way at the same time. There is no middle ground here. 
It's an either-or proposition. Either I am a lover of the world or I'm a lover of God. You remember what James wrote in James 4, 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? If you're a friend of the world or a thing in the world, you become what? An enemy of God. You know, these passages really sober my thinking in terms of the kind of commitment that the Lord calls for, if you think about it, from those who are his followers. It cannot be. It cannot be a nominal approach or anything close to a nominal approach to Christianity that will assure us of being pleasing to God and going to heaven. It takes, it takes commitment. It takes serious commitment. And I realize that for some, they're just not willing to make that kind of commitment. And they're willing to stop somewhere short of that and convince themselves that they've made enough of a commitment to be able to be pleasing to God and hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. And tragically, based upon what I read in Scripture, those who have adopted that attitude could be in for the worst shock of their afterlife. Because it's a serious matter when you study the scriptures as a whole, this being one of them, as to what the Lord expects of us. But then I ask, is that unrealistic of him? <laughs> is that more than he should ask of us? To be completely committed to him? And to love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind? Or is that what should flow naturally from our realization that our sins are forgiven, we've known Him, we've come to God through Christ, what He's done for us? That kind of commitment's not unrealistic at all, is it? And as you read your Bibles, you can see that kind of commitment called for time and time again. Matthew 6.24 comes to mind. No one can serve two masters. He'll either love the one, hate the other, or be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That is material things. You can't do it. Does that mean you can't have any material things? Well, of course not. But you can't serve them. You can't serve them. And that's where Satan enters the picture and begins to go to work and get us to serving. While at the same time, we convince ourselves we are not serving Him. And all the time, we are. Many times people are. In other words, they, will, they are willingly stopping short of the kind of commitment that God truly requires of those who are his followers. And they ultimately convince themselves that stopping short will be good enough. We sin. We fall short despite our best efforts, but that's the point. God wants our best efforts. He wants our best efforts. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then in verse 16... John says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 
And those are the three avenues I'm sure you've heard through which all sin seems to come. Those are the three general categories. The lust of the flesh, or the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And go back to Genesis 3 and verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eye, and a tree desirable to make one wise, pride of life, I can be smart if I eat this. Those are the three avenues, aren't they? And when Satan, after 40 days of hunger, tempted our Lord, what were the three avenues? Turn these stones to bread, lust of the flesh. I'll show you all the kingdoms of the world before your eyes. That'll get your attention. Lust of the eyes. Look at what I could have. Satan put before him. And then the pride of life. You, you can get on this pinnacle of this temple and you can throw yourself off and the angels will bear you up and you will not get a scratch. And by doing that, you can show, look who I am. I'm the Son of God. Those three avenues were there then, weren't they? And they're still here tonight. Satan uses them very effectively. But all of that is not of the Father, but is of the world. And finally, in verse 17, and the world is passing away. Is passing away. Literally, the tense indicates even now. Before our very eyes, though not perceptible to the naked eye, the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics is an established law that says less and less useful energy. The world is passing away. And the lust of it, it'll all go away and is going away even now. So why does it make sense to attach yourself to something that is even now passing away when you can do the will of God and abide forever? And what is the will of God? For you, if you haven't obeyed the gospel, it is believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, being willing to repent of your sins, to confess Jesus as the Christ, and to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. To rise to walk in newness of life with a commitment as a little child then, a babe in Christ, knowing that you've been forgiven by the blood of Christ that is applied in baptism, that you've been added to the kingdom, to the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that you can now move toward maturity, growing in your faith, becoming stronger and stronger each day that you live. But if you know tonight that you once obeyed that gospel and were that little child, that babe in Christ, but you have not continued to grow, in fact, you've fallen back and have not lived faithfully and need to come home because you've sinned in a way to bring reproach upon the church to which you were once added, then you need to come back through repentance and confession of that wrong as we stand to sing. Will you come?